hey, this is Ed. So this is a podcast, is that right? This is. Okay. We're officially podcasting right now. That's awesome. This is Straight from the Cutter's Mouth. Welcome to Straight from the Cutter's Mouth, a retina podcast. At least once a week, we aim to bring you insights and perspectives from the world of vitreoretinal surgery. I am your host, Dr. Jay Shreed. Today, on episode 288, we bring you a preview of the April 2021 edition of Retinal Physician. Retinal Physician can be found online at retinalphysician.com, and we discuss uh, four articles from the latest issues. We talk about complement as a target in macular degeneration. We talk about uh, some data pre- uh, presented in this write-up about brolicizumab real-world use in the last year. We then transition to discussing clinical trials and the effect of COVID-19 on those trials and end with the discussion of polypoidal choroidal vasculopathy. As always, you can find a list of financial disclosures for the contributors in the episode description, and you can claim CME credits for this episode and many other episodes by clicking on the link in the episode description. That will take you to the American Academy of Ophthalmology website to claim your CME credit. Straight from the Cutter's Mouth is now back with a preview of the April 2021 edition of Retinal Physician. Uh, we are also live on Zoom video for this episode, which will also be posted to YouTube. Uh, joining us for this episode in alphabetical order, first, uh, Rinali uh, Patel Gupta from the West Coast. Rinali, welcome. Thank you, Jay. Thanks for having me. And uh, next in um, alphabetical order, and not least at all, is Dr. Ajay Kurian. <laughs> Uh, from the Northeast. I know his name because he has an upper left corner of his virtual background. <laughs> I just wanted to make sure you do my name, Jay. Thanks for having me back again. <laughs> this is great. I'm not used to video. I'm still adjusting. I'm half shaven. I've got a backwards baseball cap because my hair is a mess. And um, I somehow snuck into my office at Baskin Palmer without getting kicked out. So we are going to be previewing these uh, articles. Again, all these articles are available online at retinalphysician.com. Our goal is not to go through them in extensive detail. You can always read them at retinalposition.com on your own, but to kind of use them as jumping off points for discussion. So the first article we'll talk about is called Targeting Innate Immune Activity in Age-Related Macular Degeneration. Subtitle, Promising Candidate Molecules are in the Later Stages of Development. This is by Carl Rogello and Jeff Heyer. And some of this I think we've talked about, so I don't want to belabor, but if you haven't heard those episodes where we've talked about this stuff, the complement system has been kind of... It, they kind of go through the basic science. If you don't remember from medical school, how the complement system works, and then how does it tie into retinal disease? Well, it seems to play a key role in macular degeneration. So it has become a target for multiple molecules, both in the past and currently. And they kind of go through some of the failures that if you're a fellow right now, maybe you don't know about, but we both, all three of us have heard about these drugs and we're really excited about these drugs at some point. For example, lampalizumab, um, which you know in a phase three didn't meet its endpoint. Um, and now we have the newer molecules kind of looking at this, ranging from some of the molecules that don't even have a, uh, a true name anymore, that just have these like kind of acronym names with numbers like NGM or GEM. And then we have drugs that are getting closer to the end, like the Apellus drug, and they kind of go through the Apellus studies, which look encouraging as they move into phase three. Um, the other thing they talk about, again, it, it, tying into the complement pathway, there is the glycan pathway, and this is pretty um, science heavy, but it's, I think it's very interesting to look at and read about. Uh, and they talk about ABD 104, for example, which again, it's targeting the complement pathway, but through this glycan pathway is influencing it. So um, I, I, I would say this, I mean, I think, again, I don't want to beat a dead horse to death because I think we've talked about complement and dry AMD before, but um, Rinaldi, for me, I think this underscores just like, this is such an area of interest um, 
for clinicians who have patients who want to see better or not lose vision, for patients who are worried about going blind. And frankly, from a practical perspective, for industry folks who are looking for a place to invest their money or a pharmaceutical company that's looking to make inroads because there is no drug on the market that's been shown to do this. So, you know, what are kind of your thoughts on why, let's, let's talk about the past, first of all, like why do you think that complement molecules to this point have not been able to achieve a phase three kind of success that's resulted in approval? Um, great question. And I completely agree with you. I think we all know that dry AMD is, is an area where there's a huge unmet need. We have nothing that we can do for these advanced stage eyes that are losing vision due to geographic atrophy. And it's just, um, it's incredibly sad to watch these patients lose vision. And it's one of the, the few areas outside of degenerations in our field where, where we just watch patients uh, progress and have not really any uh, interventions that can help them. And I think we were all really excited about the complement pathway just based upon all the basic science data and the genetics data and the data about complement proteins in the Drusen bodies themselves. And, um, and a few years ago, the, even the early phase two studies uh, with lampalizumab with the Mahalo study, I think um, many of us were thinking that one or more of these would come to fruition and, and it, it hasn't as of yet. Now, that being said, of course, we have a couple of drugs more recently, um, the Apellus drug and the complement factor five drug um, that look like they have an impact on geographic atrophy, notwithstanding their uh, increased rates of exudation. Um, but th those signals do suggest that maybe we are on the right path. The complement system is really very complicated. It's a complex pathway with a lot of feedback mechanisms that, and bypass mechanisms, um, whereby it, it may not be a, a straightforward fix. Um, and, and then of course, you know, from study design perspectives, it's, it's hard to design a trial to detect failure progression in a already slow progressing disease as compared to um, reducing disease activity like subretinal fluid or intraretinal fluid in, in an active, um, faster moving uh, disease like wet AMD or diabetic retinopathy or things like that. So I think part of it is the disease itself, selecting the right patient population because your control group needs to progress in order for you to show a difference in progression um, to, have an, to see an impact. Um, I think all of those things are, are um, influencing the, the lack of success that we've seen. Um, but I think that some of the repeated um, impacts that we're seeing in some of these phase two studies suggest that we might be on the right track. And um, I'm hopeful that one or more of these um, will eventually show some benefit. But you know, that remains to be seen as we saw with lampalizumab. The phase three trials very well may, may not show a significant impact. That's, you know, that's the, the big points. And I think if you, you know, if you look at, you know, we have Apellus looking at Derby and Oaks phase three, we have uh, Zymura slash Ivoric with the C5 inhibitor looking at Gather 2 right now. But again, you referenced the GA lesion reduction. And, and that's, Ajay, one of the interesting points is like, what should be an outcome measure, right? For, for dry MD studies, right? So like vision, I think is a tough one because like, like if you had it, flip it around, I always think like if you were the patient, right? Like, so what would be the outcome you care about? It would be, I don't want to go blind and I want to maintain my level of functioning. So visual acuity seems like it makes sense. Uh, obviously drastic decrease in visual acuity 
are bad. Bernali referenced the fact this is a slowly progressive disease and people have talked about there's other factors in dry AMD besides pure Snell and visual acuity. Somebody's just gonna read that line. They just, they just can't read it with the contrast and definition that they had before. And so people have talked about low luminance testing or some sort of contrast sensitivity measure. I mean, in your mind, what is kind of the ideal way to design a primary outcome measure? Is it GA lesion size or should it be something more functional? That's a great question. You know, I think that we've often relied on a functional test like visual acuity um, as our main outcome for so many studies. But with something like geographic atrophy, especially where you have a big range of baseline visual acuity, that can really vary in terms of your inclusion criteria. And so certainly if you're looking at patients who already have some big lesions, looking at their visual acuity is just not gonna be um, a good endpoint for those patients um, because they already have lost so much vision um, in the important areas of their vision. And so any reduction in that lesion size might reduce some of their peripheral vision or aid with, uh, if we were to look at like micropermetry or something like that, but for just straight visual acuity, you're not gonna see those differences. When you switch over to the patients who already have good vision, I think that the visual acuity is certainly a, a better marker for those patients. But just like you said, there's so many different aspects in vision that's separate from just reading that Snellen chart in that optimized state um, that I think is really problematic for patients. We have patients all the time who come in with uh, sometimes really good vision, like 2025, 20, 2030, and they're saying they just can't function because everywhere except for that very tiny center of the phobia is affected by geographic atrophy. That's where they're trying to read something or, or look at something at a distance. It's just not the same as what we're experiencing when we're testing their general visual acuity and they're slowly going from letter to letter. Um, you know, I think that, that we have seen evolution of visual uh, outcomes that have been looked at. So if we're thinking about like things like the SPARC genetic testing, they were able to rely a lot more on visual function um, in terms of the actual use of the function through like that maze system that they developed for testing it. I think. As time passes, I do picture us evolving our visual outcomes for these patients and breaking them out potentially differently based on your starting visual acuity and your starting uh, geographic area. Um, all that being said, it is nice to be able to look at the geographic atrophy um, area and compare that over time because it's just so objective. And we all know from the clinic that there's such a large subjective aspect for visual acuity testing, even with functional visual acuity testing. You just have a difference in motivation sometimes and certainly a big placebo factor that, that could play into to any patient that's getting a, uh, being part of a clinical trial. You know, usually we kind of spend the most time in the first article and that's going to be true here. I mean, there's, one, there's two other points I want to bring up. And one of them, Rinaldi, you mentioned is interesting is the increased exudation in the treated patients versus the sham patients. So I feel like our generation is now like seeing the opposite of what our forefathers saw with the CAT trial where they're like, oh, wow, like if we treat these patients with anti-VEGF, they go dry and they get more atrophy. And now we're kind of seeing the flip side maybe in the study where it's like, well, if you treat these patients for dry AMD, more than develop exudation and wet AMD, we don't know, this is small numbers, maybe a phase three doesn't show it, but it's kind of an interesting you know, observation. Like one of the things that some people thought about the CAT trial, some people said, well, is it anti-VEGF inducing atrophy or are you simply redirecting patients from a binary kind of pathway? And if they don't go wet, now they're just gonna go dry and progress. I mean, what, what do you think we're gonna see with that? And if that is, that, that is true, then it becomes an interesting question. Kind of the last question would be number needed to treat, who do you treat, right? So like, do you take a patient who's intermediate dry, who may be intermediate dry for a long time. And if you treat them now, you're increasing their risk of wet AMD conversion, which could be really devastating if it's not picked up. 
I think those are great points. I think that um, it'll be interesting to see what the, the phase three studies show. And to that end, uh, all the more reason that um, functional secondary outcomes related to vision are important. It's going to be important to see what happens to these patients. How do they respond to anti-VEGF and whether patients even want to take on that risk and that increased burden of treatment is an, a whole other question. Plus the fact that in the real world, um, they're not going to be monitored the same way that they are in a trial. So we can expect that the outcomes may be worse with the exudative subgroup. In terms of why this is happening, um, I don't know, but I think it's very interesting. Um, there's a lot of really compelling data upon intersections between the inflammation pathways and the um, angiogenic pathways, um, especially with regard to macrophage polarization. There's some data that when you uh, change the, the inflammatory state, macrophages shift from an M1 to an M2 phenotype, which is more angiogenic and that this might uh, play a role. Um, in this increased exudation that we're seeing. And so I think the phase three trials are gonna be interesting and some of the potential treatments like the SIGLEC uh, or glycan approaches that target multiple facets of inflammation and not just the complement system, but also the macrophage polarization uh, in theory might be um, increasingly compelling if the exudative component comes to bear in, in the phase three trials. But um, I think it'll be interesting to follow how that evolves. Ajay, a tough act to follow. Great points. Um, any thoughts from, from your end just before we move on to the next article? I think it's just a, a very exciting time in dry AMD. I feel like for so many years now, I've been telling That's an oxymoron, Ajay. <laughs> <laughs> we've, we've been keeping on telling our patients that, that something's around the corner. Um, I'm really hoping that that uh, actually bears fruit uh, in the next few years and that we actually have something to offer our patients. I think there'll be a lot of excited patients for that. And the reason I laugh and you guys laugh is like, because dry AMD, like you said, it feels like we've been stuck in the mud. I mean, there's been a lot of excitement and I don't want to, I don't want to undervalue the work that people have put in. I mean, there's been a lot of money and a lot of effort and a lot of time put in, but it just feels from a, like you said, from a clinical perspective, we haven't had that breakthrough. And I think we got kind of spoiled in our instant gratification generation a little bit with anti-VEGF. I know that also took a lot of work, but it felt like you hit the home run and now it's just like, oh, even though wet AMD, Renal, you're talking about dry AMD is so complicated, which is why maybe this isn't working. But wet AMD is also very complicated. We just forget about it because we're just like, oh, anti-VEGF, boom. You know, success rate is fantastic. It doesn't treat everyone, but the success rate is very, very high. Um, so we have it. It's almost like we've been chipping and chipping and chipping away at the, the rock. And at some point, the whole thing's going to come down. I need a better analogy than that. Rock, maybe that sounds destructive, but um, <laughs> this article. So speaking of wet AMD and speaking of things that did not go according to plan, this was an article written by Matt McCumber called Characteristics of Patient on Brolicizumab. And subtitle, a large registry study demonstrates that patient on the newer drug had better baseline vision. And again, we have talked about Brolicizumab at length. If you read the article again, it was approved late 2019. There were some issues that came out in terms of IOI, radiopathic ocular inflammation and vision loss that have maybe limited some people's use of it. But what they did is they did a real world evaluation of what happened with the patients who actually got, and this is an IRIS registry study. And the, and the interesting thing is, um, is most of these patients, again, were on a flibercept or you know, less likely ranibizumab or bevacizumab and were switched. And again, there's going to be some bias in this sort of study because patients are generally switched when one of two things are not are true. Either they aren't getting the effect they need in terms of reducing exudation or 
there was a durability issue and they're trying to achieve better durability. That being said, if you look at the characteristics of the patients who got brolicizumab and you kind of match it up, they you know, had kind of improved visual acuity um, in the sense at baseline, they tended to have better vision than patients who have other anti-VEGFs, which is a little fascinating because this is in the context of, again, questions about safety and durability, uh, not durability, safety and reliability in terms of maybe some, some associated negative ocular effects. So, you know, Ajay, we'll work our way back. I mean, what do you make of this data? Like, I, I think it's interesting. Um, I think that it shows in some sense it may be biased that you have a patient with really good vision who's not responding. Maybe that's why you're choosing to switch them. You have a patient with good vision who simply can't come in for visits, especially with the pandemic last year, maybe you switched them. But I, I feel like it's weird because I'm like the opposite where like, unless it's a really, their worst eye and they really aren't getting better, then maybe if I talk to them and they understand the risk, maybe then I would consider it. Um, but I don't know what you make of this data. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that that's usually the, the patient that I would consider the most um, for this medication. But one of the hypotheses that they brought up is that the patients who have the best vision are the ones who benefit the most from that increased interval. And so um, they found that there's a pretty big range in the time between their last injection and their first brolicizumab injection. But when you look at the median for like their last three injections, it's about six weeks in between. And so um, overall, these patients are, it seems like in general, are about Q6, um, which is a pretty high disease burden. And so if somebody has really good vision is on that um, regimen, I could see how there could be a potential push from the the patient side to wanting to have a, an increased duration. And especially when the drug first came out, I think we were all very excited about that potential to, to increase the duration. Um, but in light of, of the concerns about the IOI, I think that I would still be hesitant to put a patient who has really good vision at that interval um, on a, a drug where they could potentially have some, some decreased vision afterwards because of inflammation related to the medication. Rinaldi, your thoughts? No, I, I, I agree. I mean, I think it's um, interesting data in this uh, real world data is always really interesting. And I think that as the IRIS registry grows and uh, Verena Health or other analytic approaches to, to handle the sheer volume of the data, we'll find continue to gain interesting insights about what we as retina specialists are doing. Um, but then again, it, the downside is that it, it's hard to take um, data like this and necessarily understand exactly what's going on. The, the control was a historical sample from 200, from 2019. It wasn't like people from the same time points who didn't get brolicizumab and um, exactly what's going on and why is hard to parse out. But um, I think as, as Ajay mentioned uh, and the authors of the, the article mentioned that likely these were um, more active patients who had better vision at baseline, they're living their life, they're doing things and coming in every six weeks was uh, a lot. And before we understood the uh, risks, um, I'm not surprised that those are the patients who are trying to extend their intervals and, and achieve uh, a better quality of life in that way. Yeah, I mean, I, we've talked about iris studies, beta studies and how there's limitations. There's like very good benefits, very big limitations. This is even more interesting because this is like a big data study 
that's retrospective in a certain time period where you know that the use was influenced by something during it, right? So it's like, like you said, yeah. like these were the patients who were first started maybe before the reports came out. And it'd be interesting to kind of graph over time and see like, okay, the use definitely went down. We know that. But who were the patients who were later? Like, like what is the time point in March, 2021? And then you're in the pandemic. Then you've got another external factor that makes influence whether or not it's implemented. Maybe you use it more because yeah. you want to extend, maybe you use it less because you're like, oh God, if they use it and they have inflammation or an issue, how am I going to bring this patient in? The point is that like, it, it's interesting to think about a big data study now in the context of external factors that are significant influencing such as drug toxicity is unknown and now a pandemic. Um, I don't know if it, from a research perspective, Ajay, it maybe it changes the way you interpret it, especially as a retrospective study. And I don't really know a good way to clean that up when you interpret it. Yeah, you know, especially in in the post-pandemic time, if you're looking at this data from the Irish Registry, there's going to be all sorts of impacts when you're looking at like incidents of use and things like that, because there's going to be a lot of self-selected patients who don't come for follow-up during the pandemic. And so I think it's going to be really tough to to look at those kind of questions during that period of time. We can track um, with fairly good reliability when our volumes like went back to normal. And so I think we would be able to delineate a time period that is like not the ideal data uh, set and then look at everything before that and after that. Um, if we wanna really try to compare apples to apples when looking at uh, these questions. Yeah. So. In the vein of the COVID-19 pandemic, let's transition to talking about this article from the COVID-19 pandemic. And I'm going to apologize for, to Audrey and Rinaldi. They only got a Word document copy of this article. You all are going to see like the full version because we got this well in advance from the team at Retinal Physician. But this is written by Dr. Margaret Chang. Um, and she's talking a little bit about clinical trials and how they were impacted by COVID-19, which I think is a fascinating subject. How do you do research in the context of pandemic? How do you adjust the trial? And then we've talked before, like how do you even adjust like results or how, you know, dropout studies or studies that really look closely at treatment intervals, like it's going to be really fascinating to see what happens with data. But she starts with a more interesting discussion about the fjords of Norway, which I've always had a fascination with the word fjord since I was a kid reaching the hitchhiker's <laughs> of the galaxy. Um, but I don't really know what a fjord is, but it sounds really, really pretty. But then she talks about, you know, certain <laughs> issues with the pandemic, right? So is it justifiable to use PPE in a pandemic for trials, right? Should you save those for essential workers or should you use them? What about recruiting new patients? Can you do that during a trial? How do you handle that when a study has a limited window to recruit? Um, and I'm sure every study kind of different things and you guys can comment in your experiences. You know, what do you do in terms of the protocol? What do you do in terms of elective surgeries, such as, for example, the port placement for a Genentech study she referenced? That's an elective surgery. It's certain some, some locations were shut down, weren't able to do that for months. Other locations may have access to that. That changes how the study is conducted. Um, and then, you know, then, then the other things are kind of like, how do you maintain staff, which is relevant and practical, not only for your in-office clinic, but research. A lot of times you only have certain photographers or certain techs were certified for that study. And if they're out because of COVID-19, if you don't have that redundancy, then maybe you have the patient in there, you could bring them in, but you don't have the staff to take the images you need or to do the injections you need to do. So, I mean, this sounds like a huge headache. Um, I am uh, not uh, a PI on any major trials or was not a PI on any major trials during the pandemic. So I can't comment directly on my experience, but, you know, Rinaldi reading this, like, what do you what do you think? I mean, like, I think that this is a tremendous issue ethically 
thankfully it seems we've transitioned away from that, but it's still kind of a question. Like if we get another wave this summer or this fall, how do you even write that into a protocol? If you're trying to write a protocol for a trial, practically that costs multi-million dollars to run multi-center. Yeah, great question. You know, I, I happen to be uh, transitioning to California uh, and not yet in practice here during the peak of the pandemic. So um, many of the things that my colleagues face in terms of OR shutting down and uh, redirecting patient volume and patients not coming in and all in clinical trial implications. Um, I didn't see that firsthand. It's things have been far more under control since I started in practice here. Um, but I, I think it's a great article that highlights some of these real concerns, ethical concerns. I mean, um, just as we have a responsibility to our patients with active disease that could go blind and that we continue to treat for wet AMD, for example, I, I think we do as a, as a field and as a scientific community do have an obligation to continue to further the science. There's a lot of money and um, logistics and a lot of things that line up to allow these large trials to, to, to happen. And um, it, it would be devastating for some of them to, to have to be stopped or restarted um, in, in the setting of the pandemic, but you're weighing that against, you know, a global pandemic with uh, real issues, um, which you mentioned in terms of PPE resources, access to ORs, um, just being able to maintain the appropriate patient flow in your office to mitigate their risk while also uh, following study design protocols and masking protocols and, and all of those things. Um, I think it's going to be really interesting when some of the ongoing trials get their data and how they figure out how to parse through that data and clean it up for treatment interruptions or dropouts or, or um, you know, other reasons patients uh, didn't continue in the trial. Um, I don't have the answers, but I, I think it's a really um, challenging ethical dilemma because we, we do have to further the science um, whenever possible while, while balancing this risk to society and, and resources that are limited. And um, curious to see what, what Ajay, um, if Ajay experienced any of this and what your experience was. Yeah, it was definitely um, a tough thing to navigate. There was certainly a lot of issues from the patient side because they certainly didn't want to come in in the middle of all this. Um, and so that was one factor. And then there was also a lot of logistical issues on, on our side because of the impact on the pandemic in terms of cutting down our volumes and things like that and limiting other staff from coming in who didn't have to be there. Um, I think one thing, you know, although the, the port delivery device is an elective surgery, I think that the treatment of, of these patients is not elective. And I think that the Academy ASRS all agree that these patients who are undergoing interventional injections for these problems, they, they needed to, to continue these injections. Um, and so a large amount of our studies included patients who would be coming for treatments of some sort. I think the ones that um, were a little bit harder were things like geographic atrophy where, where that treatment hasn't been proven. And so the standard of care of observation or sham treatment hasn't been proven to be worse than, than these experimental treatments that we're looking at. Um, but I think it took a lot of coordination from our study coordinators, our like the head of our research unit, uh, Alan Ho, Jason Shu, Senior Guard, um, and and our administrative staff uh, to basically work with the sponsors to figure out a plan essentially to help move all of our monitoring to virtual to 
figure out ways to make our patients feel more comfortable and set up like a new infrastructure to make their in and out even faster than it used to be um, and go through all these things and talk to these patients and also accept that some of these patients, they just would not come back. And maybe it's not the best idea to have some of these patients come back in certain trials uh, during that time period. Um, that being said, I think our sponsors were all very understanding. I think it's similar to the argument of like, kids are getting left behind because of virtual schooling. Everybody is in the same boat. And so every study that was going on right now face these exact same issues. And so no study that was happening during this time period is not gonna have a data issue to, to deal with, but thankfully there's a lot of statistical methods that could be employed with imputing data or other things that, that can be done to try to overcome this. Um, and I, I'm hoping that the FDA will be understanding since this was such a, a universal problem um, when interpreting the data. Mm -hmm. You know, it's such a fine balance, right? Because we're talking about protocols and we can't lose the forest for the trees. I mean, we all know this and probably the audience knows this. Why do the protocols exist? The protocols exist because you want to be able to make sure that whatever investigational agent is coming on the market is A, safe and B, effective. And also you don't want the converse where, you know, I mean, we know this, like if you say something is significant versus non-significant, statistically, that difference can be very small you overcome that by powering your study sufficiently. So it can't be just influenced by random chance, hopefully. And again, what does even that p-value mean? It means that there's less than a 5% chance that the results were influenced by sort of randomness, right? That there is actually a meaningful difference there. Um, there's a lot of money at stake, but also it's really critical, right? Like if you have a stage three dry MD drug, which you didn't have this year, that is on the verge and then something comes down to how the data is then kind of looked at afterward that influences it negatively and it should have been on the market, that's a huge loss for patients for years to come. Conversely, if we get the opposite where we're too lax or the FDA is too lax in terms of what they allow, maybe we get things on the market and then of six months later, we're like, oh God, there's this problem that wasn't picked up because we lost our power calculation because we didn't have the sufficient power that was initially there to pick up this side effect that was really disastrous, right? So like, I'm not trying to, I mean, those are obviously very extreme scenarios. Like you said, Ajay, probably it will all end up fine because all the trials are influenced this way. But my point is I don't begrudge whoever's at the FDA or in these companies, but like sit there and figure that out. I'm not a stats person. I know you are more of a stats person, but you know, you can do a lot of things with stats either way. It's gonna be a real question, like how strict are you about this versus how lax? Because the whole reason it was powered that way was to, because that was the ideal number to achieve that goal. And we probably aren't just like, I, I'm curious, like some of these studies like just aren't going to hit their power number. They initially calculated and FDA is going to have to, like you said, just be like, okay, show us what you have. If it is a phase three. And again, we don't have that many phase threes, but then it's kind of an internal decision by the company being like, okay, phase one or phase two, can we get investors to buy in? Do clinicians buy in enough where we move on to a next stage? So anyway, I, I think it's super complicated. It's cool the way you guys did it. Um, and I think that sounds like a really reasonable approach. So let's move on to this last article. And I feel like polypoidal um, cordial vasculopathy always gets the short end of the stick. And yet again, it's now the fourth article we're discussing. Um, but I think it's a cool uh, disease entity, and we're going to talk about it a little bit. This is a peer-reviewed article called Protodynamic Therapy for Polypoidal or Subretinal Aneurysmal Neovascularization. Subtitle Combination Therapy or Treatment with PDT Could Provide Better Results Than Anti-VEGF Monotherapy. This is by Kokami et al. Uh, and this is a great article. I mean, it's a really good review of diagnosing PCV, of recognizing PCV, 
what do you look for on your different imaging tests? Obviously, ICG really being historical gold, gold standard to really look for those polypoidal lesions with the branching vascular network. You know, some of the findings we're seeing now in terms of um, ONFOS, OCT, and OCTA, and then treatment. And, and again, the biggest trial kind of looking at treatment is um, the Everest trial, Everest 2 trial, which we've talked about looking how combination PDT plus anti-VEGF was superior to anti-VEGF alone. Um, you know, polypoidal is such a fascinating disease in some sense, because I think that we get so much into wet AMD mode that we just treat and treat and treat. And if you're not in an area where you see a lot of patients of a certain demographic, then that's probably appropriate for 99.9% .9 of your population. But I think no matter where you live in the United States nowadays or in the world, you're going to encounter some patients who are on the polypoidal spectrum at least. So Murnali, I mean, I think my point would be my general approach for someone I suspect having polypoidal is I still initiate anti-VEGF therapy first because sometimes getting PDT, depending on your practice situation, may not be that easy. It's really easy to tell someone to do a PDT laser. Some practices just don't have it. We have it here. We're lucky. But then my general approach is that they're not responding adequately in a sense anatomically. They're not getting the response we want. Then I will very, very, very quickly transition to PDT. And then usually they still require injections after, kind of matching that Everest 2 uh, cohort. Um, what are your thoughts on, on PCV? Um, how often do you think we're seeing it? How often do you think that we're just not recognizing it? Because I, I feel every once in a while I see a referral where a patient comes in and they very clearly have PCV and they've had some sort of massive hemorrhage and you just wonder if maybe PDT had been implemented earlier could have avoided this scenario. Yeah, I think um, this was a really nice article. Uh, Dr. Kokami sees a lot of PCV and is just a really interesting resource and expert uh, on this condition. I, and I think, um, I think that um, that we as a field uh, under-recognize PCV. Um, his study highlights the fact that, you know, many studies have shown 25 to 30% of Caucasians have a PCV phenotype. And I think that especially if you're not doing ICG, uh, you're gonna miss that uh, not infrequently. Um, my approach is that I, I tend to do um, ICG on almost all FA slash ICG and all, almost all of my patients when they get diagnosed with wet AMD for the first time. And if they have features consistent with PCV, I'm more inclined to start with uh, a flibercept than I am with ranibizumab. And I know there's no great head-to-head -head studies, but uh, there's a few studies, Everest and Planet and others um, individually that lead me to think there's a better response. I, I I don't start with PDT in almost any patient with um, PCV. I treat with anti-VEGF, uh, preferably ILEA. And if I fail to see a response, um, I will then consider it at that point. And, and that reflects in part the, the studies which were referenced in this article. Um, Everest looked at ranibizumab and it gave PDT from the get-go and it showed uh, improved outcomes in the combination therapy, whereas Planet treated with a flibercept monthly times three, then Q8 for a year and then treat in an extend, which is not quite exactly how we do it, but um, not too dissimilar from the treat and extend approach that we use. And only 6% when they were doing every four week um, ILEA needed PDT. So for me, that's a reason to not do PDT where I could get choroidal ischemia and not to mention it's a bigger production to do the treatment in the first place. If 94% of my patients after three monthly injections wouldn't would be responding quite well. And 
And in their study, 15% failed at a year, but they were doing Q8, whereas we would typically treat and extend and maybe part of that 15%, if you kept them at every four weeks or six weeks or seven weeks or whatever, would continue to respond. So I, I start with ILEA whenever possible. I always try to get an ICG. If, if I'm in an office where I don't have access to ICG, I usually have them come for just an angiogram visit to, uh, to another office to get that scan that one time. And then I try start with ILEA. And then if I fail to see a response, then I'll consider uh, PDT down the road. But I do agree that it's under-recognized um, and some people almost never do ICG. And I think you'll miss um, PCV frequently if you don't do ICG, although there are some OCT features that the, the, the paper uh, describe that can clue you in, but maybe half the time you'll pick that up on OCT alone. Yeah, that's a, that's a great. Um, you know, I, I wonder. I always I get this question sometimes from like a medical student or resident in my clinic when we talk about PCV, and they're like, "Well, why don't we do? Why isn't there not a Everest or Planet type study for wet EMD?" Right. So, like, why do we not have that? And it's actually a good question. I mean, if you don't have a historical basis, you're kind of like, "Oh, like you know that that's kind of interesting." But I mean, part of the reason is PCV has, didn't respond as well quote unquote, and has can be more aggressive than quote unquote traditional wet AMD. And I think there's a spectrum. I think we all agree that it's not just a binary system where you're either PCV or wet AMD. There are patients on a PCV-like spectrum and that extends. And there's probably some overlap with patients who have peripheral CNVMs that are isolated and some overlap with the patients we call you know, pecker or petcher, where they have these peripheral exudative lesions that can bleed. And they're all very different. Like the petcher patients tend to be different you know, uh, ethnically, the PCV patients behave differently, but there, there's probably some overlap. If you really get down to genetics and how it looked, if you don't have that info, there's probably some overlap. So like, but I, but I think part of it is that anti we talked about this earlier, anti-VEGF works so well for wet AMD, we're not really talking about a significant percentage of non-responders. And when you do talk about non-response papers, there are people talk about all sorts of options. They talk about adding PDT. They talk, there's papers about intravitreal steroids, which really don't work that well. There's papers looking at topical aqueous suppressants. There's papers looking at, you know, treating every two weeks or alternating agents with a sample. I mean, there's all sorts of things that are out there. PCV, the reason there's this data is because in Asia, there's a significant PCV population. They don't respond as well. They can be having a more aggressive course. So of course, you're going to look for adjuvant therapy that could be helpful. And that's maybe why we see the difference here. Um, you know, Ajay, my, my question for you is, let's say you have a, a non-clear-cut diagnosis of PCV. You're not really sure. I mean, you think it may be on the spectrum. The ICG really didn't impress you, but they're not responding as well as you would like to injections, whether it's a durability concern or an exudation and potential vision loss concern. Is PDT your next move? Do you do what do you do for your non-responder wet AMD patients when you're like, well, maybe it's PCV, but I'm not really seeing those clear polyps I'm going to target? What's kind of your game plan? Those are definitely some of the, the toughest cases. And I think um, some of those non-responders where we're not seeing anything like that looks like a PCV lesion are the patients that we were so excited for a drug like brolicizumab because it showed some potential increased uh, benefit for those patients. My usual next step in a patient who's not responding to Q4 is to try uh, Q2 just to see how they're doing with that. Um, and a solid number of patients do benefit from that. Um, and it's, it's a tough regimen to, to utilize. But I think as we're learning more about the potential to be able to tolerate some subretinal fluid, 
um, that makes me a little bit less aggressive for some of those patients who can get to Q4 with a little bit of fluid. Um, it's fairly rare for me to see a patient who is having like a ton of exudation at Q4 on, on any of our medications that we have. Um, some, some just respond to, to certain medications better, but um, I think that there's often uh, a, a fairly good response to a flibercept or at least um, to, at the Q4 interval. And so the number of patients that I've run into where I feel like I'm actually losing vision um, and have an issue with is, is very, very low. I haven't gone to PDT for those patients unless I'm seeing something else that would uh, show that they would uh, necessarily benefit like a, like a PCV lesion or something like that. But so far, the patients that I've done the ICG on in those cases, I don't find a PCV lesion. So I haven't gone to PDT right away. I have had some colleagues in the past who just use PDT fairly early in some patients who they can't stretch out. Um, but as uh, Rinaldi was pointing out before, there are some drawbacks to PDT and that's often sort of uh, made me shy away from utilizing it. I think uh, certainly in the era that we all trained in, our utilization of, of PDT is way less than some of our colleagues um, who trained when PDT was done very commonly. And so I think that definitely affects my feeling of comfort with PDT and probably makes those potential risks seem larger in my head um, when approaching these patients. But I'm really curious to see how you guys handle those patients. So not to drag down PDT, because I'm gonna get into a second. I do use it, actually, I probably use it more than anyone else, maybe, maybe not everyone else, but I'll use it for a fair number of scenarios. Um, I, I just remember as a, as a resident reading like the BCSC retina and it, it always lags behind what you're doing in real life. And at that time, and this is gonna date me, uh, you know, this is 10 years ago, guys, right? You're reading the BCSC and it's talking about like the macular photocoagulation study. And then it gets vertiporphyrin, <laughs> whatever IAP study and the TAP study. And you're reading all these trials and like, these patients are all losing vision, right? You're, whether or not they get the laser, they're losing vision. You may slow it down a little bit, but if PDT really worked, we wouldn't have been so excited about anti-VEGF. So like the point is, is it's not like you said in Ajay, a cure-all and part of it, like Rinaldi was referencing earlier, is the downsides, right? It, there are downsides, including choroidal ischemia. Um, so my honest answer is I usually don't employ it for wet AMD non-responders for that reason, unless the CNVM is a little eccentric, right? If it's outside the foveal, vascular zone, which means maybe they are more in the PCV spectrum, but maybe they're just not clear, then maybe it, the, the risk benefit is such if they're not really not responding and their vision is getting worse, you can try it um, with quote unquote less downside because of the geography. But but I agree with you. I mean, I use it a ton more for CSR and than PCV that's proven. Um, my other point I was going to make is I also think that you referenced the Q2 test. I think sometimes you just got to do a Q1 test and just see if it's actually VEGF responsive. I mean, I think sometimes we all get tunnel vision and we're just like injecting and we're like, they're not getting better. Switch them to ranibizumab, they're not getting better. Switch them to Flibercept, they're not getting better. And let me do Q2 and they're not budging. And then sometimes I think you, this is something I learned is you just treat them and bring them back in five to seven days. And that's when you should get peak effect of that anti-VEGF molecule. And if it is absolutely the same, then chances are that I've made a mistake and at some point along the way, and maybe it's not VEGF mediated, maybe it's central serous, maybe it's something else, maybe it's exuded it for another reason. But I, I don't know if either of you guys have done that, Mernali, but I think that's also everyone's yeah. while have a patient where it's just like, or, you know, Rosenfeld and others have talked about, it. sometimes you just get a large PED with a little bit of fluid and it never will move because it's anatomic related to that PED. It's kind of in the gutter. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I, I do the same thing. If they're, um, 
It's infrequent, as Ajay mentioned, that I see hemorrhage or intraretinal fluid that's not responsive to monthly injections, especially with the Clobercept. Um, but it's quite common that I see a sliver or more of subretinal fluid that just persists even at Q4. And I don't inject more frequently than Q4, but I'll inject them and then I'll have them come back uh, in two weeks to see if there's any response. And if there isn't, um, I'll even try to extend it out so that we're not treating them for, for nothing. Um, I, I have found that sometimes when you get these non-responders and you look at them at that time, you don't see the um, polypoidal lesions per se on your angiography because they're partially treated. Um, but if you can track down from your referring doctor or from a prior doctor, what it looked like before you started, sometimes you'll see some PCB features in these eyes. But but I agree. I think we've all learned that you can tolerate some subretinal fluid if, if there, there's no hemorrhage or intraretinal fluid. And I even will slowly try to extend those because if the fluid's going to stay the exact same, whether I inject Q4 or Q7 or Q8, I'd like to reduce that treatment burden and, and uh, whatever tiny risk there is to injections as much as possible. I have patients who for years um, at, at Cornell who for you know, the entire time I was there had a sliver of subretinal fluid and their vision didn't budge as many studies um, have since shown. Great points. Well, guys, I appreciate you coming on. We went a little over, but we did a great discussion of these four articles. Again, for listeners and viewers, you can find these articles online at retinalphysician.com. Uh, Rinali Patel-Gupta, Ajakurian, thanks so much for coming on. Thank you. Thanks for having us today. As always, you can find this episode and many other podcast episodes on our website, retinapodcast.com. It's R-E-T-I-N-A podcast.com. All 288 episodes are found there sorted by category. In addition, you can find links to subscribe and receive updates on the latest episodes in your email inbox. We are on Facebook and on Twitter at Retina Podcast, and you can find us in the Apple Store as well as the Android Store on your mobile device. We uh, love getting feedback. You can give us feedback by clicking the contact us link on our website or emailing us directly to retinapodcast at gmail.com. Many thanks to Mrinali Patel Gupta and Ajay Kurian for joining me for this episode. Thank you to Jennifer Ford and the team at Pentavision for providing the articles for Retinal Physician in Advance. Thank you to Drs. Angela Chang, Mike Benacasa, and Louis Kai for their work in producing this episode and the accompanying social media. And listeners, thank you. Thank you for all you do, the patient care you deliver, the articles you read and publish, and the conversations you inspire here each week. This is Jay Schreeder, signing off. Good feeling. This is straight from the cutter's mouth. <laughs>